Our guest today is Brian Fox. He is the CEO of Richelieu Foods, a private label pizza manufacturer. There's a good chance that you've eaten their products and didn't even know it. They manufacture pizza for many grocery stores and delis across the country. We discuss pizza, of course, but we also talk about the food industry in general, where it is going, and where it is under attack. Brian really cares about this industry, and you'll see that passion from the very beginning. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about what, uh, uh, we're going to talk pizza, okay? So, so tell us about contract manufacturing and contract manufacturing pizza. Okay, yeah. So, look. I, I like to say that, that the the concept of private label, store brands, contract manufacturing are all kind of different sides of the same kind of task or same kind of job that we do here. Uh, the, the, the story of, of whether you want to call it contract manufacturing or call it private brands or store brands or 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 just your own you know manufacturing, it, it's it's really simple. We decide what those products are, and we work with our partner customers to kind of decide what we want that product to be. How do we want it to look? How do we want it to taste? Uh, you know, what size? What kind of price point are we trying to hit and target? And then we design backwards into the formulations, the mix, the products that we put on those things to kind of deliver uh, what either the retailer is expecting, another brand is expecting, or you know we expect as as uh, a final consumer for a product that's acceptable to the market. So I kind of I kind of call those things uh, like I said different different sides of the same of the same coin. The, the The reality is is you know branded manufacturing and contract manufacturing or private label manufacturing are really all the same. We're, we're trying to define that product that meets the consumer expectations, and we're working backwards in our systems to try to figure out the ways to deliver those things. Okay, so when you have someone come to you and say, I want a pizza that tastes exactly like, uh, I want a pizza that tastes exactly like Pizza Hut or something, then you go, you go about making that happen with your R&D group? Yeah, actually, so yeah, really good uh, question, and I'll kind of m maybe walk you through the process on how we do that. So let's just say somebody comes in, as you said, wants the Pizza Hut pizza. Well, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go out and buy a bunch of Pizza Hut pizzas so that we can try to determine what are the things that we need to match. It, you know, is there a specific flavor profile coming from the sauce so that we can try to develop a sauce that matches that? Uh, what is this crux like? Uh, can we find the characteristics within our own set of crust that we have, or do we need to design something new? And so we, we try to separate each of those things. We, we kind of call it scraping. So we'll literally take a, a pizza, and if it's possible, we'll scrape everything off of that pizza. We want to weigh the cheese as much as possible to try to go, okay, they put X ounces of the cheese on there. They put Y ounces of pepperoni or Z ounces of vegetables and, and sauce. And, and we try to get the crust weight right. So, oh gosh, the Pizza Hut crust is, you know, 17.4 ounces. Okay, can we get a 17.4 ounce crust? Yes, you can. And so we're really trying to get very granular and define all those details. Because ultimately, that's what we need to be able to understand to deliver against that expectation 
as we work forward now to go, yes, we found the crust that matches. We're going to take that Pizza Hut crust. We're going to we're going to divide it up. You know, we're going to cook it. We're going to uh, try to look at the texture of, you know, is that an open cell texture inside the bread? Is it a closed cell texture? Is it, do we think that's a rising crust? Do we think it's a thin crust? You know, what are the characteristics that we find in here? And then we go with our R&D team and our production team back and go, hey, do we have something that matches this or is close to it? Do we need to develop something new? And so we're getting super, super granular all the way through the process to try to create that match as closely as possible. I, I, I would say um, we, we kind of have a term in, in our business that we call the golden tongue. So, uh, you know, the, the gold is often in the eye of the, of the beholder. <laughs> and so, you know, everybody's taste buds are different. Everybody's palate is slightly different. And so when we, on our side, believe that we have that match you know we've tasted a lot we're cooking up our product we're you know looking at the competitor product and we feel like we've got a match ultimately now then it goes to the customer and the customer says does it match and what you will find is inevitably there's always slight tweaks even though we believe we've gotten it right um because everybody tastes things slightly differently we we probably have to do another small adjustment very rarely do you get everybody to go, yeah, that's it, perfect. You got it because of, of those differences. But it's fun. I think it's fun. Our team loves it too and thinks it's fun. Yeah. You probably get somebody who'll say, make it just like Pizza Hut, but I don't want it as salty. And you're thinking, what does that mean as salty? Because what you think is salty, what I think is salty are two different things. Totally. And that's kind of why we, we jokingly call it the golden time, because you just don't know. It is, uh, and, and you know, your taste buds change depending on what you've done. So did you burn your tongue on coffee this morning? Because you went to Starbucks, you got a really hot cup of coffee. Uh, I kind of burnt my tongue a little bit, and now I'm going to go into the lab and try to taste product. Guess what? You're going to taste it a little bit differently than you, than you would have if you didn't. And so... Getting that right, getting the nuances right on that is is really hard. takes time. Um, but, you know, we're able to get it. We're able to get it. It just, you know, takes that right time. And sometimes it takes two or three times of, of doing it and and going through the process and everybody kind of going, yeah, we, we, we think we got it this time. Because it just, it varies day to day. It, it's, hard to, it's hard to get right, but it's fun. Yeah. So, so you have all these pizzas you're making for all these, I know grocery store chains, you do it and you do it for Sam, some places like that. So this is all over the country. And I know that pizza is different in different parts of the country. So you guys can't make a one, one size fits all pizza because, you know, people in New York no, like right. pizza different than Chicago, than different than California. So what do you do there? Yeah. You know, it, it's funny. Uh, we were just, uh, I, I'll, I will kind of give you a context of the story here, which is we were just working with our parent company in, in Germany on some things about the U.S. market. And, uh, you know, the, the guy in Germany says, well, you know, uh, the, the people in the U.S. market that are are your heaviest pizza consumers are changing because there's a lot more, um, you know, Hispanic and, and Latin culture coming into the U.S. and they maybe don't eat pizza the same way. 
and and he kind of classified pizza as Italian food, and I and I kind of corrected him. I said, "Oh, I don't really classify pizza as Italian food. It's American food. So it it may have that Italian, you know, heritage in in the picture, but at the end of the day, it's an American food. And yet, like America, you know, we have a heavy population of Italian heritage in the Northeast. We have a heavy population of German, uh, Polish, and other uh, parts of the country that settled in the Midwest. And we have deep different people that settled in the South, and, and California's palates are really different, too. Uh, and, and, and Marine, that's why we have over 30 different crusts that we use, because we're trying to find the things that meet it for that that particular need. You know, we have customers go, hey, I, I want a rising crust. Well, we've got six different formulations on rising crust because we want it to rise more, we want it to rise a little less, we want it to be a little bit more dense, we want it to be a little bit more airy. Um, you know, we have variations on stuffed crust, we have variations on thin crust, because you're right. The the beauty of the American product is, of pizza is that it's different everywhere. Everybody has their little thing. We're we're working right now on uh, a Detroit style pizza, which is you know really different than a Chicago deep dish style pizza. So the Detroit style pizza is is generally square. It's generally very thick. Uh, and what it's done is there is uh, sometimes cheese or other things on the bottom of the pizza that gives that outer edge of the crust a real crunch and a real bite and a chewiness to it. Sometimes it's a butter on the bottom that that almost kind of fries the crust a little bit as you bake it. But it's just having that experience makes it very different than a Chicago deep dish style pizza. So to, to me, it, it, it's what makes pizza such a fun business and such a, a cool category are these variations and and how you decide what works and what doesn't work and 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 it's it, it's a dynamic category and it's it's a uniquely uh, American category that you can kind of customize for for different people in different areas. It, again, it's I keep saying that it's a fun business because it is it is a fun business and uh, we love to eat pizza at our office and have have some hot and fresh every single day. So. There's good things about that, bad things yeah. about that. We try to moderate it, but you know, it's 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 uh, it 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 just makes it a fun place to work. Yeah. Now, I've never heard of Detroit style pizza, but have you ever seen a pierogi pizza? A pierogi pizza. Do you know what a pierogi? Do you know what a pierogi is? I do know what a pierogi is. Uh, no, I can't say that I have seen a pierogi style pizza. Well, if you come to Western Pennsylvania, you can get a pierogi pizza, and I will tell you, it is a crust. It's a crust, usually with a garlic butter sauce put on it, or you know, with well, maybe in the order they would do it, they would do the crust. They do mashed potatoes, okay. And then onion sautéed in some garlic butter and put on top of it. And that's really all it is. Oh, and the cheese. You got the mozzarella cheese. So you have just mashed potatoes, the onions and the butter, the cheese and the crust. And a lot of restaurants will make you a pierogi pizza. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, sounds, it sounds delicious. 
because you, you, you had me you had me with the uh, holy trinity of Italian <laughs> cookies, butter, <laughs> garlic, and onion. You know that's the holy trinity of Italian cooking. You got those three things, and 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 you've already got me as a as a fan and 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 wanting to try it. So, so. you should go and in, go into your test kitchen and make one of those and see what happens. I would sell in Western Pennsylvania. I don't know where else, but. We would all buy it. Yeah, got it. I, I will. I will talk to our our RD lead on that, uh, Jim, and say, "Hey, Jim, if you if you if you see the pierogi pizza, I'm gonna try to whip one of those up." He has a culinary background, so he loves. You know, if I bring him something like that, he'll be he'll be all on it. He'll be like, "Okay, I can do it." When do you want to taste it? <laughs> I I know it would sell around here, but I run into lots of people in the country who don't know what a pierogi is. So they would be kind of... Yeah, that's true. They would be kind of like, what's a pierogi pizza? Well, you know, it's it, it's 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 a great thing. And like I said, we have restaurants that will make it. Because we have Mexican pizzas. You know, we have, like you said, that it's not really Italian. Anything you can throw on that crust... And get to your mouth with some cheese. I think that's it. It has to be crust and cheese. And if you got anything else, is a is a, up for grabs. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And, and the thing, I, as you were you were talking, it, you kind of made me reflect back on uh, years and years and years ago, twenty ish, maybe twenty five years ago. I went to uh, a, a, a pizza convention out in Las Vegas, and one of the guys that spoke at the pizza convention in Las Vegas was. Um, Wolfgang Puck. And as you know, Wolf, Wolfgang Puck is very famous for uh, the super high-end pizza restaurant in L.A. called Spago. So um, I, I didn't, you know, and, until I kind of got into the food business, I didn't really understand what Spago was. But that's really what it is, a high-end pizza place. Um, so uh, Wolfgang Puck was was up on stage, and he was kind of talking about pizza and and, and the fun things about it. And he said, look, it's it's a it's a meal uniquely designed to share around the table. He says it's a round pizza. It's round. With the exception of Detroit. We'll, we'll hold on that for a minute. But in, in, in general, it's round. And what happens at round tables? People share. Every slice is equal. Everybody is involved in the conversation at a round table versus a square or rectangular or other things like that, where you're facing each other across this thing. He says, it's the meal perfectly designed for natural interaction. And I had never thought about that before until he, he spoke about it. And you, and you kind of go, gosh, that's, that's, it's right. You know, um, and, and, you know, look, there are other foods that fit in that area. You know, pies and cakes do the same thing. You know, they're kind of round. You can eat them at the table. You can share them in that same way. You can you can get those equal slices and have that involvement. Um, but, but I love the concept of thinking about food as more than food and, and a connection. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it, if you think about when your family gets together, whether it's your, your, you know, your close-in family or an extended family, where do people end up spending their time? Most of the time it's in the kitchen. You know, whether it's by design or not, everybody kind of defaults to the kitchen. And so thinking about food as this sharing event, as this gathering event, as uh, something beyond just the need to 
I'm hungry. I've, I've got to eat something. It's just, it's fun. And pizza delivers on that very well. Again, not the only food that delivers on that very well, but it kind of the natural shape of it kind of lends itself to that. And, and when you think about food as that, as that gathering point, as that connection point, you, you kind of go, gosh, that that's a really good, that's a really good concept. And, and, and frankly, it's part of what makes being in the food business so much fun. I mean, I, I love the food business. I've, I've been doing this for 34 years. So I've, I've seen a lot. I've been in a lot of uh, different categories. And I just love the dynamic of you, you can uh, help create products that, you know, provide value to consumers. I mean, you know, most of my career has been on the, uh, on the private label side of the business and I go, Hey, I, I try to help everybody's dollars go further. And, and that's, that's cool. And that's fun. And I can help create new ideas that you can see on the shelf very immediately. You know, my, my son, uh, was in the automotive business for a number of years. And he's like, yeah, the, the cool thing about the automotive business is this, you know, big sexy thing that you can kind of see driving down the road, but you know, we're working on stuff now that I won't see on the street for another four years. Well, that doesn't happen in food. I mean, we can go from an idea to on the shelf in four or five months uh, in, in the right cases. And, and, and that dynamic of the food industry, I think is, is really, really cool and it's fun and you, and, and you, you just connect to it because everybody, everybody eats and wants to eat and wants to eat well and, and have fun doing it. And so that's part of why I'm, I've enjoyed uh, my time in this industry. And it's been a, been a fit for me probably than a, than a lot of other things wouldn't have been as good a fit as, as food. Yeah. Well, I have found with working in the food industry for about 30 years is that when you make a product that makes people happy, and I don't mean your food made them happy. I mean, food in general, people buy it because they, they like it. You end up having that, that it has kind of pervasive into your company, meaning that the people you hire are happy because they're making other people happy. So I've talked to people in other industries and they sound like the people they work with are miserable. Everybody's miserable. They got a miserable thing they're working on. It could be something like, you know, screws and bolts and, you know, wiring or something. That's just not a happy product. But people in the food industry, they, they're, they're happy about this because they know that if they made the customer happy, they sell more product. You know, I mean, yes, some people do choose a pizza by the price. Sometimes they choose it by a particular brand or commercial or something. But when it comes down to it, if they're looking at that pizza and they go, I really like, you know, pepperoni and black olive, they're going to buy that pizza. I really like Mexican pizza or I really like a pierogi pizza. Um, they're going to buy it and they're going to go home and they're going to be happy. And especially if it does what they want it to do, because I know that I have expectations. If it is a, if it is a cheap pizza, I expect it to taste like a cheap pizza. And if it's an expensive pizza, it better taste like an expensive pizza. Yeah. And I, I totally, I totally agree with you, Marie. And, and I'll, I will say the other cool thing about pizza is, is there's a very easy ability to make it your own. Mm -hmm. So you go to the store, you buy the pepperoni pizza and you bring it at home and you go, I love black olives. Well, guess what? 
most people probably have some olives somewhere, whether it's at a can or in a jar or whatever that they can. If they're already sliced, they just open it up and sprinkle it on the pizza. And now you got a super black olive and pepperoni pizza. Or if they go, you know, I really like hot peppers on my pizza and I don't, I can't find a pizza out in the market that's got the peppers at the spice that I like. You got them in your fridge or, or, or wherever you, you pick them out of the garden. It's pretty easy to light them up and pop them on top. So that ability to kind of customize it very quickly, very easily and kind of make it your own is another thing that is kind of fun about our category. Um, you know, th- you can do that in other categories, but something about getting the product that's, let's call it um, 90% of what you want and adding that other, that other 10% for your own personal flair is easier and faster in this category than it is in some others. You know, it's not like I'm making a pot roast from scratch. Uh, and, and, and by the way, I love pot roast, not, not, not good pot roast, love it. But you know, that's a long and involved kind of deal to do that. Well, gosh, I can chop up some peppers and banana peppers and, uh, jalapenos and, and open up a can of black olives and put all those things on my pizza inside of about five minutes. And, and then you're ready to roll with something that's now yours and, and, and not just, um, with the convenience and, and speed that, you know, often we're challenged with in our life because we got kids that are, you know, in between, uh, you know, we just got off from school. We've got um, a soccer practice tonight and a, and a softball practice, uh, you know, uh, for one kid and, and soccer for the other. We're, we're trying to get in between two. Okay. Boom, I could pop this in the oven in, in 25 minutes and, and do my little customization and now I've got a you know our old meal as opposed to just a fast food meal or something like that so kind of just another one of the little cool things about our segment yeah and the other thing is it's all about compromise because we might have four people that want four different things and we have two pizzas well you know what we can do that because we can do a half a pizza each we can do pepperoni pizza half with mushroom half with black olive we can do you know somebody wants you know all these things instead of picking things off a pizza instead of ordering a pizza and picking stuff off and you know i have I love veggie pizza and I don't care what vegetable you put on it as long as you put chicken on it, you know? So all these restaurants, all these, you know, places, fat, whether it's a frozen pizza or a restaurant pizza, they have veggie pizzas, but nobody has chicken. So I just put my own chicken on it. And if somebody else wants pepperoni on that, they just stick pepperoni on their half. So I've always said, this is the best thing to compromise on. Yeah. It's funny that you bring that up because uh, you know I, I have I have three kids. They're all they're all out of the house now uh, and, and doing their own things. But uh, I said, you know, it was that was often the challenge of the evening is what are we gonna what are we gonna eat and trying to get five people to decide on the same thing is, is can be a challenge. Uh, even though you're in the same family, you kind of go, hey, we've been raised at the same taste. Well, you know, why can't everybody like olives or why can't everybody like mushrooms? But yeah, it, uh, that's a challenge, and especially with younger kids who tend to be a little bit more picky about things than an older ones. Tell talk to us a little bit about this. Um, 
you do frozen pizza and you also do, don't you do like ready to bake or ready to eat? or what, what, Tell us all about the different kinds of pizzas, how we can get them. Yeah, so look, uh, two two kind of main ways that we do it. Uh, frozen pizza that you would see in, in the frozen section of grocery stores. And then the other part is is a deli pizza. So uh, the deli pizzas are, are, you know, we make them and freeze them here. We ship them to retailers. Retailers tend to thaw those out and put them in the deli section. Um, you know, same kind of uh, quality, um, but uh, because they're, you know, thawed out in the deli section, you know, they're, um, they're more fresh. They cook a little bit quicker. Generally, they're larger in size because, you know, that's kind of what fits for the people that are, are deli shopping. And, and because they're buying it in, in, in deli, um, you probably are more likely to customize those things. Um, so it, it, is, it is another option for it. We also put those, um, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of different retailers buy those today in pizza boxes. I mean, they literally look like the Domino's box or the Pizza Hut box. Uh, so you can kind of open that up, take it home, pop it in the fridge. It kind of competes, um, you know, a bit more with the uh, uh, make and take kind of pizza chains, you know, where you where you walk in and go, hey, I want a pizza, put this on it and this on it, this on it, this on it. Well, guess what? In some cases, those guys are buying frozen dough balls and they just thaw them out, spread them out into a pizza and make it there. It's kind of similar, similar to that. So a, a little bit more fresh, generally a little bit more premium. Sometimes we have larger quantities of ingredients or, or you know, larger sizes to kind of uh, uh, change the texture and, and bite of, of particular products. So do you ever make pizzas for like stadiums and ballparks and places like that? You know, it depends. Uh, we just started a new piece of business uh, with Regal Cinemas. So, uh, you know, you can go into cinemas now and, and get kind of a flatbread type pizza, personal flatbread pizza. We actually just start shipping those in the, in the last month. So, um, stadiums, uh, and things like that are kind of go through the food service channel. We do do a little bit of business like that, but, uh, the majority of the things that we do today are, are focused on, on retail. But yeah, we're excited about this partnership with Regal Cinemas, and and hopefully we can we could turn that into an even bigger business. Again, those things are are uh, generally much more personal size, so that they can bake it, you know, in store. They put it in one of those little kind of conveyor belt uh, ovens, uh, can cook them up pretty quickly, and take it back to your seat and enjoy it while you enjoy your favorite movie. So let's give people some perspective on how many pizzas do you make? Like a day, a month, a year? How many pizzas are we talking about? Over a hundred million a year. So it, it's a big number. Wow. <laughs> hundred million is, is a lot of pizzas. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not the biggest pizza guy. Uh, I think the biggest single site pizza plant is in Salina, Kansas. And I think they make about 500 a million out of that single site. Uh, plant in Kansas. And that, that's where the branded guy. Wow. All right. So we just came through the pandemic and everybody screamed about the supply chain. How did that affect you guys? 
Oh yeah, absolutely affected us. It was a it was a huge huge deal. I, I would say uh, the primary effect on us was around elements uh, that go into the product, and and the and and the element that impacted us the most was cardboard uh, packaging. So, uh, like all people in the manufacturing business, because of aging populations, because of uh, you know people that decided to retire during the pandemic or um you know chose not to go into work for what whatever the reasons are um we had a lot of paper companies that uh supplied products and and by the way it may not be just because they didn't go into work or they decided to retire it it was also kind of the double whammy of people staying at home and buying things from Amazon oh yeah so basically you 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 kind of had this uh, this double challenge of um, increased demand for cardboard because of home shipping, as well as labor challenges that came up in the pandemic. The, the double uh, the double hit of those things really put a crap on that supply chain. And for a paper industry that was used to growth of you know one or two percent a year all of a sudden had, you know, seven or eight or 10% growth in, in, in demand, uh, the spare capacity on that side of the industry just got, it, it, it went away overnight, unfortunately. And so that was probably the longest lasting impact for us uh, of the supply chain from the pandemic. Yeah, I, I think a lot of companies the last, I don't know, like 20 years, I, I had a brother who was in logistics and he said they were so proud of doing everything in what we used to call just in time. You never warehoused things that you could order and get on time. So why would you warehouse, you know, hundreds of millions of pieces of cardboard boxes, you know, because you just your supplier just gave them to you right on time, right when you needed them. Yeah. And all of a sudden, and then some people got ahead of the curve and started hoarding, you know? I know companies said that they they bought like, you know, we're usually bought a month ahead. Now we we bought, you know, six, nine months worth of, of this, which meant somebody else who didn't get right on that button to order was left out in the cold. Yeah, and I would say... Uh, that was also a factor in in what I call the whiplash of the supply chain. Uh, is all of a sudden, uh, it, you know, whether it was the consumer at the store going, "Ooh, I'm not going to be here again for two more weeks. So I'm going to buy instead of buy one of this, I'm going to buy five of this." They, well, Hannah, they still ate the one, uh, but they put the other four in the freezer. Um, so it, it happened at every level from the consumer all the way back through going, you know, the, the retailer is going, oh, my gosh, uh, I can't I can't order a thousand of these. I'm going to order five thousand. And then, you know, then that signal reaches us as a, as a supplier and we go, oh, I, I'm instead of getting an order for a thousand, I got an order for five thousand. So we're going to order ten thousand of this. And it just kind of backed itself up in the supply chain, and that's that's kind of why they call it the whiplash, because that's exactly what happened was whiplash. It was kind of an over uh, an over adjustment 
to a very quick change in in the demand signal that contributed to it. You know, so not only did um, uh, the consumer behavior change, retailer behavior change, manufacturer behavior change, uh, at the same time as we're seeing, uh, you know, labor behavior change, uh, you know, all for, all for good reasons, you know, all for good reasons through the supply chain. And I, you know, I, having been in the business for a really, really, really long time, you know, my wife, when the pandemic hit, she's like, oh my gosh, are we really going to run out of toilet paper? I'm like, no, we're not really going to run out of toilet paper. Well, you might give it a little bit of time. You might personally run out of it and have to borrow from the neighbors, but. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But as the United States, yeah, no, we're not. We're not really going to run out of these things. I said, I said you've just got to give the industry time to react to that. And and unfortunately, you know, the the news of oh my gosh, there's a run on X, Y, or Z, kind of contributed to it too. So uh, people uh, make decisions based on emotions, mm-hmm. and we use logic to to rationalize our emotional decision. And so um, when you hear of shortage, what do you do? The emotion goes, oh, my gosh, that means we got to run out and do this. And so we kind of, we kind of created this false demand uh, that, you know, had a long, long-term impact to unwind. I, I, I knew that our industry generally would have the capacity whether you're in pizza, whether you're in paper, whether you're in, you know, cardboard, we generally have the capacity in the United States to kind of solve and read all those things. It just depends on the time. Uh, nobody has, nobody, no manufacturing company that operates efficiently and effectively has 50% of free capacity sitting open at any point in time. That's just not, it's not logical. You can't afford that. You know, nobody can afford to have that amount. We, we try to run, you know, with a zone of spare capacity that let's call it in them, you know, five to 15% range and, or five to 20% range, because any more than that, and you've just got capital that's not being used, you've got labor that's not being used and that's really, really expensive. And so, we try to manage those things down to a, a zone of normal deviation. And when you get, you know, three or four times that deviation, you just can't respond to it immediately. I kept, I kept saying, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. You just got to give us a little bit of time to react. You've got to give the emotion to give way to logic. And, and, you know, when people come home and go, Hey, I, I've got a more place to put, um, you know, 36 packs of, uh, or 64 packs of toilet paper and, and paper towels. Guess what? That means, uh, your signal for demand is going to go the other direction and the rest of the industry is going to catch back up. I was one of those people who said, oh, we'll be fine on the toilet paper. Do not worry about it. Uh, my husband, you know, goes to the store and he comes home and goes, there is no toilet paper. And I said, none? <laughs> Come on. People didn't like, he goes, yep, they all watched the news. They ran out and bought it. So we're like down to five rolls and four rolls. And I'm going, 
you know what? Maybe we should have panicked a tiny bit and bought some toilet paper. So <laughs> I had a I had a friend who were you know actually was the manager at Sam's Club, and I said, "Would you please tell me when you have toilet paper?" Because we didn't panic and buy any. <laughs> said, okay. But I don't remember if I had to borrow, you know, borrow, not borrow, but had to get somebody to gift me some toilet paper because we didn't react fast enough. And I, after that, I reacted a little better. I still didn't think hoarding was the good idea. I still didn't think that there was any reason to buy 20 boxes of Ziploc bags or, you know, pallets of paper towels or toilet paper. So I, I, did better, you know, to, to just be a little bit ahead. So as you called it the whiplash, cause I kept telling everybody, you know what, these toilet paper guys are making toilet paper so fast right now that we're soon going to be sitting here with toilet paper up to the ceiling. Yeah, exactly. Don't worry about it. I know it'll, it'll turn around, but like I said, I, I reacted the opposite in the beginning when I thought, Oh, this will be a week. It'll just be a week that we won't have any toilet paper. Yeah. By the way, that was my approach to you. That was that was our approach to you. Again, because I've been in the business, and you kind of go, yeah, look, spikes happen, they go away. Uh, you know, and to the paper industry's credit, you know, they worked really, really hard to to ramp up demand, yeah, you know, uh, or supply like crazy. I mean, they they worked overtime. They started adding shifts and and and. Guess what? They caught up. I knew they were going to catch up. It was just the matter of time of how long it would take to catch up. And I, and I actually think they caught up pretty quickly for the panic buying that happened. And then, then you know, probably a year later becomes the whiplash of everybody going, oh, my gosh, I got, I got you know, um, 400 royals here. So I'm not going to be in the market again for, you know, six months. Yeah, I figured that would happen. The, the grocery industry is, in general, a pretty good place on those kind of things. Not everything, but um, but food in general is still North and South American sourced. You know, so it, yeah, uh, we we didn't generally have the same problems as uh, at, you know at semiconductors. You know, where I'm waiting for it to come from China. And oh, by the way. Um, <clears throat> You know, the demand for container ships it impacted things and, and stuff like that. So food, even though the food industry is global, don't, don't get me wrong, we are global. We source things from other parts of the world to, to make it fit here. A fair chunk of it was still very much North and South American sourced, and, and that made it easier to recover than if I were buying, you know, cups from somewhere else. I mean, these plastic cups are guaranteed if I look at the bottom, they're made in China mm -hmm. because that's kind of where the plastic industry went for environmental reasons, for cost reasons. Um, so our, our industry had some insulation from that that other industries didn't have insulation from. And so uh, I, I had a, I was, when the pandemic hit, I, I was living in Philadelphia and one of the guys I was in a, uh, I was in a share group, uh, of, of fellow CEOs and, and one of the guys that I was, uh, in the share group with within the home products industry business and their factory was in China. And he was like, you know, Hey, the, the price of a container went from, you know, $2,000 to $15,000, you know, almost overnight. And what am I going to do? 
because even at $15,000, and I'm willing to pay the $15,000, even though I'm, it totally, you know, destroys my business's economics, I'm willing to pay it, but I just can't even get a ship to get it on uh, uh, because the demand for other things just went exploded overnight. So um, that was one of the, the positives of being in the food business is we didn't have quite those same challenges as other people and um and and look i think everybody across the world has kind of rethought and or rethinking those dependencies and going hmm is there instead of making it all china should we have some yeah. in china and some in mexico or is china the right place maybe we add other countries uh, that redundancy of supply, you know, look, that's what happened to us on paper. Yeah. In, in for our particular business is going, Hey, we got to have redundancy of supply in this thing. You know, we were very much partnered up with a, uh, supplier in these areas. And we go, how do we get, how do we get redundancy? Because, um, that, that to me is the, the lesson of the pandemic is redundancy 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 so how do i have two suppliers for this or three suppliers if it's a particularly key area and we're putting those things in place and in, and in general i think uh if, if we had a pandemic again in in two years uh or, or whatever it would be um we would respond as an industry much better than we did last time i i can't tell you that everybody We'll go through it without a hiccup because I don't think that that's a right assessment either. But I think we will be able to handle it much better, much more efficiently and effectively than we did than we did uh, last. Yeah, and I think some U.S. boutique businesses that were like specialty kind of companies suddenly got a lot of business because they didn't have to. No one had to ship it anywhere, and they got to sell some things. Some people went crazy. I hope they've kept up their business since then, but I know they had that chance. The, um, well, the food industry is always kind of a funny thing as we talk about some of the demand. I always laugh when there's a food company or a product that might go out of business and everybody panics. And the one I'm thinking about has nothing to do with you or and your business, but like something like when Hostess was they closed Hostess briefly and Twinkies <laughs> and everybody's buying Twinkies on eBay because like they'll never be Twinkies again. And I, I bring that up because I find the average person has no clue what food manufacturing is like and that there isn't some little old lady or little old man making Twinkies and now he's not making them anymore and you guys will never get your Twinkie again. And I told everybody, I said, It'll be fine. Um, Necco wafers was another one that closed briefly. And everybody thought, oh, there'll never be Necco wafers again. And how are we going to survive without that nostalgic candy? So I try to explain to people. So when you run into people and you tell them that you work at a food company and you make food and they have no clue, I think they all think that it must be at the back of the grocery store. They must be making pizzas back there. They must be, you know, pouring the milk in the containers. I don't think a lot of people... Get it. Now, I know they watch the show, how, you know, how it's made and things like that, but I don't think they get the scope of it. No, they don't. It, uh, yeah. 
so, so look, I, I'm from uh, from North Carolina. There's not a whole lot of food industry in North Carolina. Uh, you know, there are pork plants or chicken plants and things like that. But in general, there's not a whole lot of food industry there. So for the first, you know, 20 years, you know, I, I would tell, hey, I'm in the cheese business or the pasta business. Depending on the time of career, they go, oh, wow. So you can go all the grocery stores and take cheese to them? Um, no, no, it's, it's not like that. It, look, it's um, the American food supply chain is the single most efficient and effective food supply chain in the world. Because of that, uh, because it runs so well 99.9% of the time, people kind of, it, it's out of their mind. They just go to the grocery store and it's there. Yep. It's only when it becomes a problem, like during the pandemic, going, where did this, where did this come from? You know, that you kind of, that people start trying to understand a little bit more about it. Um, and so I, I think that's a credit to the industry um, that we built in the United States because we're really good at it, really, really good at it. The American consumer spends a lower percentage of their dollar on food than any other country in the world. So. I think it's uh, I think it's something around, and I'm going to get the number wrong, but uh, 11 to 14 percent of our our uh, income is spent on food. That's the lowest percentage of anywhere else in the world. So because we work so well, it, it's just out of people's mind. You know, they just don't they just don't think about it. And so uh, again, full, full credit to our industry for doing that and for being so good at it. But uh, it, it does make it a hidden industry, and so when you tell people you do that, they kind of go, "Well, how does that? How does that happen?" They seem yeah. to be more connected with understanding how cars are made than, uh, or, or, or you know, some other durable good than than they are with what happens uh, in the food segment. And and you know, I'm I'm okay with that. In general, that means we've done a pretty darn good job of doing it. Uh, now, the, the flip side of that, uh, uh, Maureen, is uh, I think the food industry is starting to be demonized a little bit mm. for, oh, we're, we're processed or we're ultra-processed or we're, you know, we're, you know, it, it, depending on the, the newspaper you read, you know, the food companies are, are, are killing us in America. Mm-hmm. Look. I've been in I've been in this business for a long time. There is nobody in the food industry that wakes up and goes, "How do I make people fatter? How do I how do I get how do I get more sodium into them? How do I get more sugar into them?" That doesn't happen. No, that doesn't happen. That uh, every person that I know in the food business goes in to go, "How do I make a better product? How do I try to make it more affordable for more people? How do I?" deliver you know on nutrition in a way that works for for people uh and and so that lack of visibility of the industry is biting us a little bit now um i'm in an association called the uh, um, american you know frozen food institute and and we're we're doing some advocacy work in, in washington dc and and one of the things that it's happening now is, you know, the, 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 the industry or the government is trying to define what is fresh fruit, what is processed food, what is ultra-processed food. So this is kind of a passion of mine because I, 
I like to say, at the end of the day, all we are is a really big kitchen. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we're just trying to make the food that you want to buy affordable and efficient. We are not in the business of jacking it up with fat or sugar or salt. We're trying to make it affordable for more people. By the way, that's more important today than it was three years ago. Because of all the supply chain shocks that happened, frankly, costs went up. You know, it, it's not as a, it, it's not as cheap to get labor today as it was three years ago. It's not as cheap. There isn't a single commodity I think that we buy that goes into our into our into our uh, pizzas or dressing and sauces business that's as cheap as it was three years ago because of all the things that have happened. You know, we're very uh, uh, conscientious about sodium. We're very conscientious about fat. We're very conscientious about sugar and trying to do the right things to make a healthier and better product. But our industry doesn't get credit for it because we kind of don't really uh, push back on some of these definitions and, and, and as I say, a, a bit of a demonization of, of the food business. They're, you know, they're, they're trying to make Americans obese. No, we're not. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I hate the, the fact that we get lumped into these things. You know, the, the definition of the government of, of, uh, that they're trying to settle on of processed food is, hey, if you slice your strawberry industrially, if you slice it, now it's processed. Yes. Now, what really makes that process? Nothing. Mm-mm. Nothing in any definition that, you know, people are like, oh, it's, it's got to be fresh. It's got to be fresh. It's got to be fresh. So the fact that I'm cutting a strawberry to make it easier for you to use, you're now causing that, calling that process. And that process has a negative connotation. It is it, kind of ridiculous right. to me. It, it's not... It's not doing anything to help achieve what you really want to achieve, which is helping people make better choices or understand their choices better. Right. You know, that's really what you're trying to do here. So, look, I, I, you know, we make crusts. Guess what? Those crusts are made of the same thing if you made them at home. Right. Flour, a little bit of salt, some yeast, some water. We mix it up. All we're doing is mixing that up, making it into a dough ball, pressing it out into a crust. We're putting cheese on it, just like if you, you know, if you had a cow and <laughs> in your back pasture and you and you harvested milk. Guess what? To turn milk into cheese, takes salt and enzymes. Yeah. Guess what? That's the exact same thing we're doing. We're just buying it in bigger blocks. Yeah. It, you know, if, if you wanted to put tomato sauce on the on your thing and you grew tomatoes in the backyard and you ground them up and you added in, you know, basil and, and garlic and, and thyme and some other things, we're just doing that on a really large scale. So does that qualify as Processed, ultra-processed, and, and the negative connotation that goes with that, it, in my mind, it shouldn't. I mean, it, it shouldn't do that. So as a industry, 
I think we've got to do a much better job of telling our story of we're just like your kitchen at home, just bigger. You know, we're not making one pizza tonight. You know, we're making a million pizzas so that you can have a, a tomorrow night quick dinner. Yeah. We're yeah. using the same steps. We're using the same food. We're using the same thing you would do at home. Don't demonize us and put it in this ultra-process category for doing the same things you would do at home. It's just, it's it's illogical, um, but it's the narrative being driven by certain people that want to uh, push an agenda that, is is disconnected from the reality of what we do. Yes, yeah. And don't you think that the social media has has really accelerated that? Because I know years and years ago, this is back in the 70s, my grandmother got something really weird in her loaf of bread. And I cannot remember what it was. I don't remember if it was a mouse or a finger or something. It was something big. And she called the company and she didn't call the newspaper. She didn't call, put it on Facebook. She called the company and they said, oh my goodness, we'll be right over. And seriously, it was a, a local company. They came right over, got the loaf of bread from her. They said, what would you like? We'll give you. And they wanted to give her buns and rolls and danishes and and bread. And, and she's like, I'm a single lady. Uh, can I have two loaves of bread and maybe some hot dog buns for the weekend? That's all she wanted. And did she tell anybody? Oh, she might tell a neighbor. She might. She told us. Yeah. But that's it. Didn't go anywhere else. The company didn't collapse. It didn't go out of business. But now... A food company has to be so careful. One misstep could be the downfall of the whole company. Yeah. And these people on social media drive me crazy because I saw one the other day. They had showed a label of a Quaker Oats cereal in the United States. Then they showed the same kind of Quaker Oats cereal. They call them different things in, in England. In England. And ours had an ingredient list like two inches yeah. long. And the one in England had five ingredients. And I was confused by that, why the difference. But my guess is that we dissected out the ingredients down to the minuscule name. Yeah. And in England, they just called it flour, sugar, and, yeah. you know, flavoring. Yeah, it, it, exactly. Yeah, look, I, I, I think um, like anything in life, there are good and bad that has come out of social media and the Internet. Look, I love the fact that I can go to Google and I can find out stuff that would have taken me forever to find out uh, in the past. Hey, where can I get a, uh, you know, I, the house that I lived in was built in 1928. It's still got a lot of 1928 door locks on it. I need to get some of those door locks refurbished because they just don't work as good as they used to. Well, with the power of the Internet, I can go find, you know, 15 places to fix that in about 10 minutes, you know. Oh, wow, look, this one's close. That's awesome. Uh, the negative part of that is um, it, it, you can have someone who has no real knowledge of an industry, no real understanding of science, uh, no real understanding of 
food and nutrition, and they can be just as, uh, if not more loud, impactful from a totally unknowledgeable or irrational point of view as someone who has the real facts, the real science, the real understanding. And that is, that is dangerous, frankly. It's dangerous. I mean, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. you, you get people on the internet who can claim whatever they want, and there's no downside mm-hmm. to them proclaiming whatever they want. They can say, hey, look, yeah, Martin uh, brought this dough to the world, and so therefore it's, it's toxic. There's no, there's no penalty for them to get on the internet and say those things. None. Uh, you know, no. people will go, I don't believe that. I'm not going to pay attention to it anymore. That's fine. But there are other people that are going to go, oh, God, I didn't know that. And, uh, and they do it so cleverly, uh, so um, what I would say, they have a skill in getting uh, a magnification on a crazy thing because they understand how algorithms work. They understand that sometimes by being outrageous, I get more traffic, I get more eyeballs than if I were trying to be truthful, that in some ways it disincentivizes being honest and it uh, incentivizes being radical. And that is not a good thing for any society. Mm -mm. It's not a good thing uh, for any sharing of knowledge of any cultural. Uh, Look, I have a political point of view. I, you know, what I, what I, I will relate politics to what's going on in food because to me it's somewhat similar. Meaning, if you put 95% of Americans in a room and you took out the social media, you took out all this other stuff, we can agree on about 95% of things. You know, look, mm-hmm. is poverty bad? Yeah, poverty's bad. I don't think anybody would agree or disagree that poverty is bad. Now, where we may disagree is and how we address poverty. But if we put people in a room, we can probably rationally agree to 95% of the ideas or approaches in how to address poverty. What happens is it's the the two and a half percent of the fringe on one side or the two and a half percent of the fringe on the other side. The internet has allowed them to be loud or equally loud or louder than the 95 percent that sit in the middle and that response and that's in politics it's in it's in regulation it's in um Mm -hmm. it's in science or the lack thereof of science you know i hate it when people go Let's let's do science, 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 and then they espouse something that is completely irrational and non-scientific. And you go, okay, well, how do I believe you now if you're saying science, 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 but you're espousing something that is non-scientific? 
Um, it, 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 yeah, it's unfortunate. It, it puts the onus on us as an industry to try to counteract these illogical, Ill, irrational, frankly, emotional points of view. Um, look, I, 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 I've said it before. I've, I've said it a million times. People make decisions on emotional basis and they use whatever logic suits their point of view to justify that emotional decision. It is, that is the, that is the science of how brains make decisions. Like it or not, we like to think that we're rational. <laughs> oh no, we're, we're buying this because of this. Okay, that's you kind of justifying your decision based on a set of emotions. It's why brands have resonance over hundreds and hundreds of years because they've spent things mm -hmm. to connect to people emotionally that they go, gosh, I really feel good yes. buying this mm -hmm. versus that. It's, it's why branding works. If you didn't use emotions in making decisions, branding wouldn't work. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so all those things kind of tie together in a big, in a big pot. And, and I hate to be political about those things, but, you know, as, as I very carefully said, I tried not to tell you where my politics are. I tried to break it down in a way that that go, hey, let's not let the fringe in either side drive right. uh, the reality for where most Americans sit on most every issue. And I have and I have I have I have friends that I talk to both sides of the aisle uh, uh, that we see the same we see the same thing. It's it's the friends uh, that have. The fringe are marginalizing the mainstream, and that's unfortunate. Oh, yeah. I I have friends that are totally opposite in my political views, and people go, how could you be friends with them? I go, well, we agree on 95% of the stuff. We just don't talk about the other five. We can't, we're not going to argue about things we can't, we can't change, yeah. you know? So we, we agree. I mean, we don't have, a, there's not a lot of politics on which wine would you like to have with dinner, and not a lot of politics about picking a movie yeah you know so we we can we can get along with people that don't agree with everything we do yeah yeah you know i i used to we weren't going to go political but i i used to like when you could disagree with people and still be friends yeah i i frankly i i love that i love having the debate because in being willing oh. in being willing to have the debate you should be willing to change your mind. You know, you should mm -hmm. be willing to learn something that you didn't know before you go into the debate. That's the kind of debate I love. I love having the the chance to go, I haven't thought of that. That's a really good oh, point. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point of view. And now I may change my position because I've learned something. And that that's what Makes that fun for me, and in it, and and it should be the way that we approach it, as a as as opposed to just going, eh, no, I'm just hardening my position. People come in our house. I have I have three children, my husband, and we have three children. They're all grown. They're out of the house. I got grandkids. My kids come over for whatever we're gonna do. Matter of fact, we're having a little pizza party tonight. <laughs> Coincidence, but anyways, the. Uh, they come over, and when we have other people here, 
they're like, you guys fight so much. I'm like, we've no, we didn't even have a single fight this evening. Yeah. You know, we didn't even have an argument. We're not even a subtle argument. But yet we discuss things loudly and we make our point of view known. And matter of fact, we have no interest in changing our point of view at the moment unless you say something that I might go, oh, I never knew that. If you add new information to it, I may change my mind. But yelling about, you know, that doesn't add anything to it. So we're really not fighting. And matter of fact, when my when my son got married and his, and his um, oh, he's dating his wife, and she was always like telling him, you should not argue with your mother. And he goes, I didn't have any argument with my mother. When did I argue with my mother? And she points out that she goes, we weren't arguing, we were discussing. She goes, what well, sounded like arguing. Now she's used to it after five or six years. She's used to us. But we we discuss lots of different things, uh, especially how to do something. Like it could be anything from how to make something in the kitchen to who mows the grass correctly and which lawnmower you should own. And believe me, we, we discuss. What's the right way to fold towels? Oh, we discuss everything. We did. We discuss it to death. I mean, some people will leave our house. They're exhausted. They're like, "Do you people leave any subject unturned?" I'm like, "Nope. This is the way we are." Yeah. And I find us not to be. We're not boring at all. And the funny part is, you probably found this with your kids for years. In the beginning, you were the smartest person your kids knew. And then all of a sudden, somewhere in the teenage years, you were like, you were a moron. You knew nothing. And especially out of their 20s. Yeah. You're the dumbest person your kids know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they get, and they, they went to college and they learned all this stuff that they can't believe their parents still couldn't, they couldn't believe that we could get up and, and survive a day without their knowledge base. How come we can survive and we don't know all the things they know? And then they hit their late 20s, early 30s, and they're doing things like buying houses and stuff. And suddenly they're coming back going, can we ask your advice on this? And I'm always like, sure. So now I feel like I'm in a really good place. I'm a give and take. There's some things I know more than my kids and they ask my advice, but I call my children now and I say, I was looking at this and I didn't know which one to buy. And I knew you had it. What, what should I, you know, do you like it? Which I buy it. Or I was reading about this company. Do you think this is true? Now during elections and the pandemic, my children would filter things for me. They're like, mom, don't believe that. Please don't believe that. That's really, that's not true. That's, that's some troll on the internet putting stuff out. Like you said, they put stuff out there. They have, we, they know the algorithms and they get it out there and none of it's true. So they would filter things for me. So when it comes to basic the, the knowledge out there that's being generated by these different places, I always go to my kids and go, is this true? And they will talk me down, you know, from the ledge. There were times during the pandemic, I'm going, this isn't true. And they're like, no, it's not true. It's not true. You can, you know, you can come away from, you know, away from the edge, you're fine. And I, I like that about them, but we, oh, we discuss everything. I mean, there'll be a discussion tonight, just which movie we're going to watch. You know, uh, our, our family does a, a similar thing. And, uh, you know, here, I, I will give a lot of credit to a, a boss that I had in, in, in my past. And uh, I, I was living in Kansas City and we used to, you know, make some sales calls down at 
a little company in Arkansas, and we would make the drive down. And so the drive down from Kansas City to to uh, Northwest Arkansas is about three, three and a half hours. Uh, you know, not a bad drive. Uh, it was it was better than flying. Frankly, you couldn't you couldn't fly there as quickly as you could drive it because out of Kansas City you couldn't get anything direct. The point of this is. Uh, we would always have really debated discussions, hot discussions, in the car ride down back. And uh, this particular boss would always try to take the contra point of view. And and we, those drives flew by because you would be so engaged in whatever it was, and it kind of didn't matter what the subject was. He would always try to take Whatever the opposite view to whatever you know <laughs> thing was happening, and it was it was such a fun drive, and 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 you know at the end of the drive you go yeah you know I I agree with you guys I, I was just doing that so we could have a fun conversation, and and I always thought I always thought it was it was fun to, to do that and it, and it made the time fly uh, because you're you're engaging, you're, you're thinking, you know, you're, you're having some give and take and, and, uh, and hopefully learning something along the way. Cause that's, that's what I look at it as. Uh, I don't care if you're left. I don't care if you're right. You need to listen to the other side because if you are willing and open to listen to both sides, you will off, often learn something and it doesn't matter <clears throat> where it is. Neither side has it perfect. Uh, neither side knows everything. What you need to do is you need to gather information from both sides and form your own point of view. That's the best way of trying to figure out a lot of things in life. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of things in life come come from that come from learning from both sides. Yeah, but I find a lot of people are afraid of confrontation or discussing or arguing because I worked for a company once. I worked for a company once where arguing, disagreeing was was embraced. You could actually disagree with your boss. You were even, no one was chastised for having an argument with their boss. And we would have, we would have, I remember one time and I had a, oh, I was just having a an argument with my boss, just down and out, having this argument. And she says, oh, it's noon. Do you want to go to lunch? And I was like, oh, yeah, let's go to lunch. We went to lunch, had a very pleasant lunch and everything. Never discussed what we were discussing before. We came back went in the, back in the office and we went back at it and finished our, our discussion. And nobody hated each other. Nobody went home going, well, yeah. I'm quitting tomorrow. You know, because the, you were supposed to work it out. You were supposed to come to a decision. You're supposed to get to a conclusion. And I find a lot of people nowadays will just agree. I used to tell my employees, if you're saying yes to me all the time, there's a problem because I am not the smartest person in the room. Yeah. I said, together, we're all the smartest people in the room, but there is no one person that's smarter than all of us together. And so if you're always agreeing with me, then there's a problem. I, I'll tell you what, Marie, I can't agree with you more. Uh, that I, I love that. Uh, I had that at my very first company that I worked at. Really hot, heated discussions. Uh, sometimes, not every time, but sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it's like, all right, 
we're done. Hey, let's go out, let's go out and get lunch and how's your kids, how's your family, you know, all of this going. And that's, that's, that I'm, um, I, uh, that's the culture that I'm trying to create here at, at Richelieu is I will say it all the time, guys, do not be afraid to have a different point of view. I want you to have a different point of view. I want you to bring up, uh, I'm, I'm the first one to admit, Hey guys, I got an idea. It may be a stupid idea. I want you to tell me if it's stupid. You're not going to hurt my feelings. In fact, I encourage you to tell me if it's stupid. Uh, because just because m my title on the door doesn't mean that I know everything. It means, it means I have a point of view, but you have a point of view. We all have a point of view. Mm -hmm. I'm taking things from a frame or a context that I think fits, but I can miss it. I can miss it by a thousand miles or I can miss it by an inch. I need you to tell me you're missing it by a thousand miles or you're missing it by an inch. Okay. Now we're all smarter together as a group. We're all smarter than we are individually. There's no way that one person can be smarter than the 10 people in this room. It's just not, it's not, it's not possible. So right. have that debate, bring it up, you know, let's push each other in that right professional, uh, respectful way that says I can have a different point of view. I can have a different thought process than you based on my experience, my context than yours. It is different. That's why, that's why we're here together. We, you know, we, we want to make that right decision and I need everybody, um, uh, contributing to this so we can find out what is right. You know, I, 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 I tried so hard to, to go forget the name on the door. Okay. It's the, the title on the door. Forget it. It doesn't, doesn't mean anything. I, I need your input, Maureen. <laughs> I need your input, Tim or Mary or, or whoever it is. I, I need it. You know, let's, let's get together, decide, uh, bring up the points of view. That's how we make the best decision. It's not Brian's decision is the best decision that I yeah, but I'll bet that you go out there into your company, your plants with your people, and I bet you ask people, what do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? And if you open that conversation, I'm sure that they will share. But there's lots of people who don't want their opinion and don't want to know what they think, and they'll keep their mouth shut to the detriment of the company. Yeah, and I and look... Um as much as you try to foster that environment, you can't get everybody to buy into it at every time. And, and that's, and that's okay. Um, uh, I like to say, um, I can, I can bring the, the horse to the water, but I can't make the horse drink. Right. So I'm opening up the thing. I'm opening it up so that you will put in input, but I can't make you put in input. And hopefully what you learn through interactions over time is that your input is safe here. I'm, I'm not, mm -hmm. nobody should be going, well, that, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. If I go down in a meeting, I'm going to go, hey, we'll pull that person aside after the meeting and go, hey, can't do that. Look, we're, we're trying to get the best decision. It may not be completely clear to you why that person has that point of view. That's okay. Learn why they have that point of view. Because you may find out that there's 
nuggets in there that you just haven't thought of. So oh, yeah. we're not going to have that. We're not we're we're not going to uh, quote unquote bully a response like that. No, we want the response like that because we're that's that's how we get better because we may find something that just goes ah. Oh, I never thought of that. I can't tell you how many times you go, oh, I never thought of that. Well, that's a beautiful thing. Sometimes you're too close to it. So you're not even, you can't even see, and somebody else sees it. I remember when, ooh, I'm going to make me date myself. I remember when the um, email came out, you know, we got yeah. email. And I remember my secretary, we had a we had a computer on her desk, and I'd give her the emails, and she'd write them and send them <laughs> from our info address, you know, and I hired a new person and she was there for a little while and she goes, why don't you all have computers on your desk? And I was like, well, uh, why would we do that? And she's explaining, and she's telling me all these things about how it would benefit us. And I was like, uh, aren't that, isn't that expensive? And she said, I don't think so. We went out, checked it out. What did it cost a little bit? Yes. Yeah was the benefit all oh, much bigger that, you know, the return on investment was huge, but we never even discussed it. We didn't think about it. So this new person came in and I, I laugh now because, you know, I mean, we're so far beyond that, that even that concept, but just her saying, I think you all need your own computer. <laughs> I was like, wow. It, it, yeah. I, I remember that. I remember those days too. Sorry. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and the funny thing is, is uh, I only print stuff now out because I have to. Because somebody goes, "No, I gotta have, I've gotta have a signature in blue ink." And you kind of go, oh, "Come on, get with the times, get the get the dot loop or the DocuSign or something going." Come on, let's make this picture. You know, let's, <laughs> you know, why do I need to print this out? I don't want to print that out. That's waste. You know, yeah. uh, let's figure out a better way to do this. But you know, it's it, you know, that's. Uh, that's the evolution of, of business. That's the evolution of, of life and technology. And uh, and I, uh, to me, those things are are, are cool. Uh, I, I like to say I, I like to say I know enough about technology to be dangerous. I'm not I'm not great at it, but I'm I'm very willing to embrace it. You know, I'm very willing to go. Ooh, that's cool. Why are we doing this anymore? Let's stop and do it this way. Oh yeah, I have lots of people on speed dial to help me because <laughs> I don't know how to do certain things. But you know, I said to my husband the other day, I said, "You know what? I think they don't have those commercials anymore about killing too many trees because nobody prints anything on paper anymore. You could have, you could have an office that's paperless." I'm, I tell you, the only the only things I print anymore, literally, are are contracts that I have to sign because somebody needs a signature on it in. And an ink that's different than, you know, the color to prove that it's not a, you know, a fake signature or something. But, uh -huh. but anyway, that's, uh, that's, um, that's progress and that's progress. I like. What do you, th what, what are your challenges going forward? Now we came through the pandemic and we came through the, uh, the, um, maybe hopefully the supply chain's gotten straightened out. So what's the next, that's the next challenge. Yeah, look, I, I think the, the, the next challenge for us at, at Richelieu is um, we're, we're on our, look, our strategy is to become indispensable to our customers. So 
that's our that's our challenge. That is our strategy. How do we become indispensable? And so I think the definition of indispensable is continually changing. And I'll give you some context on on why I think that is. Uh, look, having a good quality product is table state. That's not a quality differentiator anymore. If you don't have a good quality product, you're not in the business. Period. Um, it, it's a lot of people will maybe a little bit but surprised about what I'm going to say. It's one of the reasons that um, the plant-based meat business uh, kind of had the boom, and now it's having a bit of a bust mm. because not that not that they haven't tried really really hard to make a great product. But here's what I will tell you is um, it, it doesn't completely deliver against meat. It just doesn't. Yeah. I mean, it's close. Mm -hmm. They're working hard to get there, but it's not all the way there from texture. It's not all the way there from a flavor. It's not all the way there from a total experience. And, uh, and by the way, I will reflect this back because this happened in the fat. Uh, fat products, you know, like cheese and butters and stuff like that. 25 years ago, the early uh, adopters came out. There were a lot of triers um, and they didn't generate the repeat. You know, the, a lot of American consumers are willing to try anything once. A huge proportion are willing to try anything once. But if you don't fully and completely deliver on uh, the quality characteristics that the person is expecting, they will not buy it again. And and by the way, so this happened in the in the low fat days. It happened in the low carb days. Mm -hmm. I think it's happening now in the plant based days. Uh, I think a lot of people worked really hard to come out with what they felt like was a great product. And uh, I I do not want to denigrate in any way, shape, or form. Uh, the challenge that it would be to try to create a meat substitute from a plant basis. That's really, really hard. There's a lot that went into that. Uh, uh, there is a benefit of being first to the market in that. And I think you had two guys that were out there basically at the same time as the first to market. I think they generated a tremendous amount of buzz and a tremendous amount of trial and not nearly enough repeat. And that's kind of why we've seen the, these uh, companies go from, oh my gosh, they're Wall Street starlings to, mm, you know, is, is the plant, plant category dead? No, it's not dead. No. Um, you, you're always going to have a hardcore set of consumers that are willing to have some compromises. Okay, I'm willing to compromise because of this or that, because I really... I believe in the, the plant-free or the animal-free product. So I'm willing to compromise some on texture. I'm willing to compromise some on taste or, or total product experience. But that's a pretty small set of people that are really willing to make all those compromises. The average consumer, I like to consider myself as an average consumer. Do I want to eat healthier? Yeah, I want to eat healthier. Do I always make the right choices? No, I don't always make the right choices. Am I willing to try it? Yeah, I'm willing to try it, but if it doesn't deliver, I'm not buying it again. And I think that's what's happening there. So that's a long way of saying in the journey to becoming indispensable to customers is you got to have 
Uh, quality is the table stake. Uh, routine shows that you can win. And being indispensable to customers is not just trial. It is repeat. And so you've got to deliver on that quality story every day, all day, or um, or you're not going to win. That's just one element of that. Uh, the second element of that is d delivering innovation. Uh, you've got to innovate. Um, the vast majority of what food companies do is uh, our line extension, not true innovation, because true innovation is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. Really, really hard. And by the way, 90% of them fail. So how do you figure out a way to try to truly innovate? And, and the innovation can be close-in line extension or it can be something completely new. But you, you've got to be uh, you've got to be the the company that's continually bringing those ideas forward to to retailers um, to to be that indispensable uh, service. You, you got to be excellent on service. I mean, that's somewhat table stakes now, but uh, I, I will say, you know, it, it is still hard to do that at a very very high level. Almost anybody can service at what I call 90%. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of companies can service at 95. Very few can service consistently at 98 and above because the margins just start getting harder. Any deviation starts getting harder. Mm -hmm. uh, so that is part of being indispensable. And then it's about how else do I figure out ways to deliver value beyond innovation, beyond a great quality that drives a repeat, how to, uh, beyond having exceptional service, beyond uh, uh, delivering insights about the consumer to our retailer partners to help them grow categories. Uh, you, you've got to continually try to be uncovering the what's next in that area to be indispensable. And that's, that's the journey that we're on. I would say we're still early in that journey. We've got a lot of ways that we can continue to be much, much, much better. We're working really hard to get there as quickly as we can. Um, I, I think as, a, as an organization, we're pretty good. Uh, we're not satisfied with where we're at. And, and frankly, we want to continue to raise the bar so that, you know, when a, a, a customer has an opportunity in, in the category that we play, that they call us up and go, hey, you're the guy we want to talk to because you deliver on all the things that we need. That's our ultimate goal. That's what we're pushing hard for is to be indispensable to our customers. And, and that's our that's our challenge. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's what we're shooting for. When you talk about customers, you're talking about the food, the food companies that you are making these products for. Do you ever hear from the actual customer like me? I eat one of your pizzas. Do you ever hear from us? Yeah. And so look, I, I think that that's one of the things that's unique about private label as compared to brands. I think brands are hardwired to deliver to the consumer first. And by the way, the retailer is your way to get it to the consumer. I really care about the consumer. 
private label is unique because we have to care about both. So I want the consumer that the repeat comes from the consumer. It doesn't come from the retailer. So we, yes, we do hear from consumers. We get that feedback through our retailer partners and we try to take that feedback and work and figure out how to deliver on the areas that a consumer thinks that we've fallen short or that we can do better on. But we also have our, 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 our first constituent is, is the retailer. Our second constituent is the consumer. I've got to keep both of them happy. And, and that is a little bit different because uh, the branded people, while they want to keep the retailer happy, you know, I'm not saying that they don't. Their primary thing is if I can get the consumer, if I can create enough pull, the retailer will have to carry me. Mm-hmm. The retailer will have to do things, even though they may not like all the ways that I do it. If I can create enough end consumer demand, they will kind of be forced to carry our products. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm not saying that they're trying to short change the retailer, but their end goal is to create that consumer connection. We've got to do both. And, it, and it's hard uh, because sometimes the consumer and the customer things are uh, not totally in alignment. Yeah. Meeting, meeting uh, a, a retailer may have a very, very strong point of view on what the cost should be. As opposed to, okay, well, we can get to that cost, but are you sure that it's going to, you know, make the consumer happy? I, I would say retailers are infinitely better than this than they were 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. The, the cost trade-off was much more significant 30 years ago because they kind of were like, oh, yeah, but it's about making the margin. Retailers have gotten much more sophisticated, much more um consumer in tune and much more going, okay, I really like this quality. This is the quality we need to deliver. These are the products that we need to do these things. Can you work on the cost to get it better? There's always going to be the pressure to get the cost as low as possible. They're much more in tune about making their brand, whatever that brand is, be a brand of resonance with consumers. And that's how I think, "Mm." private label, excuse me, has matured over the last 30 years that I've been in the business is it, you know, used to be white label. Oh yeah, well, we're going to make it as cheap as we can. We don't really care about the quality, but we got it really, really cheap. Now, now the retailers really care about the quality. Sometimes there's that conflict there, um, but they're much better, much more uh, conscientious, much more uh, prepared to manage the store brand as a real brand, as a competitor to a Kraft or a Heinz or a uh, a D&D type product. They really think about that much more sophisticated than they used to. And that ultimately is a really good thing because, as I've said before, repeat is king. Trial is Trial will happen, repeat is king, and the, the maturing of the of the industry to be much more in tune to that is a good thing for consumers and, and everyone involved. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm a big shopper of Aldi 
And sometimes they have a product I really like, and then it changes. And I'm com- I, sometimes I'm complaining. I'm like, why did this change? And they flat out tell you, we changed, we changed manufacturers. We switched, went to a different manufacturer. And we're like, sometimes it's a compliment. I'm like, whoa, this really changed. What'd you do? And they went to a different manufacturer. I'm like, this is good. Uh, they had a product a couple, oh, it was like a year ago. And it was keto bagels. All right. I, I, and I don't know why, but I've tried all the keto breads out there because I love bread and I feel like I could consume more if it's keto. And really, I have found every one of them to be terrible except Aldi. I don't know who makes Aldi's. So I haven't figured it out yet. I haven't tried real hard, but they had a keto bagel and I was somewhere, I was in Florida, I think, and I got some and I, these were amazing. And I've called Aldi and everything and they said, we lost our manufacturer. Uh, I don't know what they meant by we lost our manufacturer. So there has not been any keto bagels ever again at Aldi. And it makes me sad. And when I tell other people about them, like I never saw them. I'm like, yes, it was a blip. It was just like a three-month blip. And I only caught it one day and got two packages and have never seen it again. I still think about it a year later. I still think about it, but but they a company a store like Aldi since they don't Aldi Aldi doesn't make anything. That's another thing in the food industry. Where I explain to people in the grocery store. I'm like, well, Aldi doesn't make any of this stuff. They're like, what do you mean it doesn't make any of this stuff? I'm like, yeah, it doesn't make anything, and they don't understand that. It says all it says Aldi brand on it. And I just sometimes walk away. You do too. You just walk away. That goes back to our hidden. That goes back to our hidden industry discussion a little bit. It is. It is a hidden industry. People don't, again because it's it's there and it works. They kind of don't think about it. Uh, but yeah, look, I would say, uh, you know, uh, all all the other customer that, despite um, you know their uh, low cost image, their uh, their uh, price focus or discount focus in the market to the from a consumer perspective uh, does a really really good job of making sure that the quality is high. So, um, like I said, I think sometimes those are in conflict. Uh, most of the time, they're not in conflict. Most of the time, it's a really good discussion about okay, I can do that, but here's the impact. And and retailers are way smarter than they were in the past about well, okay, well that's not a re- that's not a trade off I'm willing to accept, and that's a and that's a good thing. You know, many many years ago, I'd have discussions with people because I knew where some of these food products came from, and they're like, "We're not going to buy the store brand. That's not a good thing." And I'm like, "No, you don't understand. Sometimes it's actually made by the same company that made the brand one, and." They do me too's. They reverse engineer and make this product exactly the same as the store brand. So you're supporting the store better by buying the store brand than you are by buying the brand. And you save yourself money. And I said, you get the exact same product. And I used to challenge people, just go try it. Just try it. And we're not talking about generic. Remember those years when for a few years we had generic and the black and white labels and everything? Oh, they were scary. <laughs> they were purposely trying to fool you into buying it and, and have it cheap 
And so your expectation was it was bad, but yes, store brands, I tell them all the time, buy the private label, buy those. They actually may surprise you. You may even like it better. Yeah. And you know what? It's uh, when sometimes when you talk to people about store brands, they kind of go, what's that? And you kind of go, it's way more, it's way more ubiquitous than you think. So if when you go into the Gap and you buy Gap brand, what is that? Well, it's a brand. Technically, it's their store brand. It's the Gap store. Yeah. Uh, Old Navy, what is that? Old Navy, and you're selling Old Navy clothes in there? That's all private brands. Uh, it's just sometimes you got to change your context or your frame of th- thinking about it. Craftsman in tools. Who hasn't heard of the Craftsman tool brand? Guess what? Sears Time and Label is Craftsman. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, that's told. right. Uh, Kenmore. I mean, you know, so many, so many things have been private brands in your history, but that you just, they've, they've done such a good job positioning it well uh, that you kind of didn't really realize what it was. And, you know, Old Baby Gap, two, two really good examples from the yeah. clothing side, craft, Craftsman and Kenmore from a durable good side. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, if, if you think about great value, mm-hmm. the great value brand is one of the largest brands in the world. When you add up all the things that they do together, the Kirkland brand, one of the largest brands in the world, when you add up all the things that they do. So, um, yeah, it, um, it's a, it, like I've said it before, I'll say it again, it's a fun business. Every day is a little bit different. Every day is a little bit different challenge for this, that, and the other. But uh, it's why I think the food business is fun. Um, It's not as sexy as, you know, crypto or Bitcoin or whatever the heck else it is. But I like to say food is largely recession-proof. And and I I do mean largely. It's not completely recession-proof. It's largely recession-proof. Because we all like to eat. <laughs> I think it is the sexy thing to talk about, though, because everybody wants to talk about food. You just bring up food, food shows, food baking. You you bring it all up. Everybody wants to talk about it. And some people say they they can't believe you get to work in that. I mean, would you rather go to a convention about pizza or a convention about crypto coin or whatever? I'd go with the pizza. <laughs> Definitely, definitely the pizza convention. All right. Well, I think we've uh, covered everything we needed to cover today. Um, have any parting words? I think actually what you said before was your parting words <laughs> about with the fun industry. Look, the food industry is a great industry. It's a fun industry. It's dynamic. It's constantly changing because the consumer is constantly changing. I think that makes it um, incredibly challenging, incredibly stimulating uh, and uh, allows you to be incredibly creative too. That's that's uh, some of the things that I love about the food business. You could be creative. You could come up with some ideas that somebody may think is, well, well out there, what, what? You're going to do that? Yeah, well, let's try it. Um, it. It's an industry that's crucial to America. It's an, it's an industry that has allowed us to spend our income on other things, which Americans like to spend their income on other things. Um, 
It is, it, it's vital. Uh, the gains, you know, the gains that the food industry have created in production all the way through, uh, I, I don't, you know, if, if you flash back to the uh, late 70s, early 80s, there was this, there was an author that, you know, wrote a book, and I can't remember the name of it exactly, but it was about population boom. The world will not be able to sustain, you know, a population bigger than X billion or Y billion. Well, here we are, you know, 30, 40 years later, we're sustaining them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, why are we sustaining them? Because it's gotten better at it. Um, our industry, um, despite what others may say, has the best intentions at heart. We want to provide food, good tasting food at a value. Uh, we're not, you know, uh, I like to, I like to say that we're altruistic in that standpoint, but maybe that's not, maybe that's not the right word. Um, but I think we're, we're, we, we try to do the right thing. And, and at the end of the day, we're just a big kitchen. Ah, there you go. There you have it. Well, thank you very much, Brian.